Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Solis, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Waltiero Piccinini, who is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Missouri at St. Louis. His new book, Physical Computation, a Mechanistic Account, is just out from Oxford University Press. A popular way of thinking about the mind and its relation to the brain, or to physical bodies generally, is in terms of the mind as a computer that processes information. But this general approach to solving the mind-body problem admits of a number of different and often incompatible elaborations. In his new book, Piccinini integrates philosophical and empirical work in mechanistic and psychological explanation and computability theory, among others, to provide a detailed mechanistic account of the sense in which some physical systems compute, many others do not, and that much of what computing systems do does not count as computing. He breaks with a number of dominant views, um, arguing that functional analyses of the mind are sketches of physical mechanisms, but he also says that the mind is not thereby reduced to physical mechanisms. He also holds that physical computation is not defined in semantic terms, that one can elaborate or individuate the natures of the vehicles of computation without reference to their representational properties. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Walter. Are you there? Hi, Carrie. Hi. Uh, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be talking about your new book, Physical Computation, a mechanistic account, which integrates a number of different themes that you've been working on for a, a number of years in, in computability theory and mechanisms and functional analysis and the syntax-semantics distinction and its role in information processing and, of course, the notion of information and information processing itself. Uh, before we get into the details of your account of, of physical computation, uh, could you say a bit about your uh, background as a as a philosopher and the uh, the genesis of this book? Sure. Uh, I studied philosophy and cognitive science as an undergrad, and I ran into this debate on the foundations of cognitive science about whether the brain is a computer and what does that mean. And I realized that many cognitive scientists say the brain is a computer, but they don't necessarily know what that's supposed to mean. And many philosophers have all kinds of opinions about this too, but they also uh, didn't base their arguments so much on what we know about computation from computer science and computability theory, uh, but rather on thought experiments and intuitions that they form in some, in some way. 
<laughs> and so and so I thought, well, there's room here for somebody to look more carefully at the science of computation and see what we can learn from that um, about what physical computation is. And so I did that in my dissertation. And then from the dissertation, I wrote a bunch of articles. And then from those articles, you know, I kept writing more articles and more articles. And finally, I thought, oh, I should put all this uh, material together so that it's all in one place and it's all consistent. And meanwhile, I had changed my mind about a whole bunch of things. So, um, so that's the book. It's my more mature view about <laughs> physical computation. Okay. Um, so yeah, the, it is, it's, it's quite a package. I mean, there's a lot that's, that's put together here. A lot of, a lot of interesting parts, some of which are very much against uh, certain dominant views of at least the way the relation between, uh, you know, mind and body, or in this particular case, the broadly speaking, the computer model of the brain, as you mentioned before, um, there are certain ways in which that has been articulated, which you think are not the right way. Um, so there's a lot to talk about. Um, let me just ask you before, before we get into the details to just give a basic overview, um, uh, of your view of physical computing systems um, or, or paradigm, I should say, physical computing systems, because you, you expressly, uh, you know, deny that there may be a sharp line between those that are computing systems and those that aren't. Um, but there are certainly paradigms of physical computing systems of which, you know, human beings are certainly one of them. Um, so could you, could you give a broad overview of your, uh, your account of a, what is a physical computing system? Sure. So the, the basic idea is that a physical computing system is a kind of physical system with a kind of specialized mechanistic structure. And what's special about it is that it has this uh, a, a kind of function, um, and that function is to manipulate certain entities, certain, I call them vehicles, um, and these vehicles are defined uh in abstraction from the specific physical properties that they have in any particular implementation. So you can have multiple different kinds of implementation of the same uh, computational system. So, um, so there's this kind of uh, abstract physical description of some physical systems that captures their special function, and that's what a computational description is. So it's objective, it's explanatory, it's abstract, um, and it only applies to certain kinds of systems. Okay, um, so there's a number of different different concepts there that we should um, that we can unpack, and and you do in the in the book. Um, so, what one of the things that you say at the very beginning is that uh, the view that you know minds are computers in some sense. Um, and your 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 idea that uh, uh, that we can explain the mind in terms of physical computing systems, you've you've gotten very different sorts of responses. Yeah, um, well, can I stop you for a second and sure. not a clarification? Mm -hmm. In the book, I try to stay neutral on whether the mind or the brain is 
a computer or uh-huh. a computational system more generally. Okay. Um, I, I do think that the view that it's a computer or a computational system captures something important about it, but I try to avoid taking this position in the book. So in the book, is I'm just talking about what physical computation is and then whether brains or minds are computational systems, I'll leave it for separate work, for the most part, at least. Okay. Well, um, I mean, maybe we can pursue that a little bit later, why you would why you would want to remain neutral on that perspective. Uh, but uh, let, let me just... Uh, let me just ask about so I'll, let me just ask about the uh, you know the contradictory responses that you uh-huh. that you got you know as you were working on various yeah. various parts of the book. Um, yeah. Okay, so there's a you know very common idea of uh, and and it's vague you know of information processing. Uh, uh-huh. The mind is is in some sense or information processing, and the brain is an information processor. Uh, and that's that's vague, and, and you know we, we don't need to. We can maybe go back to that issue later of what information processing is in 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 your view, or at least how it relates to your view. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, as it was articulated originally after Turing, by some early people in in compu- in computers, you know, Newell and Simon, and, and in philosophy, Fodor, of course, uh, the idea that um, thinking is symbol manipulation, right? I mean, those are the the vehicles that you mentioned are manipulated yeah. um, according to rules, and that and that sort of basic functionalist uh-huh. picture um, is kind of the. It's certainly the dominant view that when when you're explaining, introducing the picture, you say, "Well, mind is." the manipulation of symbols according to rules, at least according to this basic account. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the responses to your view was, well, there's, you, you know, you're not really saying anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, and so why bother writing the book? Um, and then on the other side, of course, you, you got other pushback uh, saying uh, your view is um, is just untenable, and so it's not worth writing the book for that reason. Um, so, could you say a bit about how your your general view, um, you know, why it has why it generated these two opposing or incompatible sorts of mm-hmm. responses? I can try. So, I think the this this kind of a extreme skeptical response comes from the notion that computation is syntactic manipulation of these symbols, but based on their syntax or syntactic structure. And uh, and all I'm saying is just kind of relabeling this syntactic view or this formal view of computation in this mechanistic language. Um, and there, I think that um, what these people are missing is that they don't usually have any naturalistic account of syntax or form, you know, the formal properties of symbols, whereas I give a uh, non-circular account of the kind of mechanism that constitutes computation. So um, so I go way deeper into a non-circular naturalistic account of computation. And there's, and there's a lot more to it, too. Um, well, on the other hand, the people who think this is not going to work, 
um, are more more likely to be the people who think emphasize the notion of symbol as a semantic entity. And so I reject the view that computation requires symbols in the semantic sense or representation. And so these people would just say, well, that's just not going to work. Computation requires symbols, requires representations. Um, okay, so let me let me then press on on both of those. Um, can you say a bit more about your naturalistic account of of syntax and uh, you know of the vehicles, um, yeah. and then of course why, uh, on your view, these vehicles. Um, uh, are not essentially individuated by their semantics because there's, you know, you, there are a number of, of arguments out there saying that they do have to be individuated semantically, um, and you and you do discuss a, a number of them, and uh, there's certain aspects of that that you you actually come to accept. But anyway, um, yeah, tell say a bit more about the vehicles and their both their naturalistic. Uh, the uh-huh. the naturalistic account you give of them, uh, and also the the rejection of the idea that they have to be individuated um, in terms of semantics. Yes. So um, vehicles are what physicists call macrostates. They are defined by certain degrees of freedom. Um, I call so call them medium independent because there's there's such abstract macrostates that um, they are justified in terms of these degrees of freedom or dif- differences between um, different portions of a vehicle uh, as they vary along a certain dimension. And this dimension is just abstractly specified, so it's not, it doesn't depend on the implementation. It's, so it's not necessarily a voltage or a speed or a mass or a charge, you know, it doesn't have to be a particular physical property. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that there is a dimension of variation of, a, of any particular implementation, and then you define the vehicle as uh, different portions or different um, different values of this variable. Um, so it's medium independent in that sense. And then the reason why it's not uh, defined semantically or it doesn't have to be individuated semantically is simply the main one at least the main one is that um, it's just as easy to define computations without uh, the vehicles meaning anything as it is to define computations with symbols that mean something it's just not part of the notion of computation that they have to be representation the representational that they have to represent something that the, that the vehicles have to be symbols in this semantic sense. And so um, just to give an example, you know, Turing machines are kind of the paradigmatic example of a computational system, and they're defined by their rules, and they're defined by the types of symbols on the tape, but these symbols don't have to mean anything, okay? We usually call them ones and zeros, but we could equally call them boxes and circles, or we could call them... uh, you know, horizontal dash and vertical dash, it doesn't matter, and they don't have to mean anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, you, can, you can define the entire dis- the discipline of computability theory, the whole theory of mathematical theory of computation, just in terms of meaningless letters without assigning them any meanings. So it's just, it's just more general if you have an account 
uh, of computation that doesn't require the symbols to mean anything. Okay. Um, I guess I guess the uh, this kind of gets uh, gets us starting into your view of of, of functions here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because people, well, even even going back to David Marr and his different levels, uh-huh. uh, uh, and and others, uh, um, uh, Aron Chagrier and have have argued that um, you need a, a semantic interpretation um, in order to understand what is being computed at all. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, although you do have a notion of function that plays an extremely important role in your account, um, that particular idea that to, uh, uh, I wasn't sure how that particular defense of the idea that you need uh, that semantics is, is kind of integral to understanding computing machines, th- that particular idea about about function um doesn't at least it doesn't come in in a as part of a demand or requirement for semantics it it comes in in a different sort of way so could you could you explain um i guess the the, the explain why the notion of function and how and what kind of notion of function um is is part of your account um, as opposed to the uh, the more usual one, let me put it that way, in which um, understanding what th- what is being computed requires you to sort of build semantics into the account. I'll try. There are two notions of function that come up in this conversation. One is the notion of a mathematical function, say from inputs to outputs of a computation. Mm-hmm. That notion definitely is part of the account. So it's, it is an account of physical computation. It's an account of how certain physical systems can take certain kinds of inputs and return certain kinds of outputs, and those outputs are a function of the inputs in this mathematical sense. Uh, but then there's another notion of function, which is the, the function used in, in biology and engineering when we say that the heart has the function of pumping the blood. Um, and that also is part of this account. And people have sometimes confused these two or conflated these two or seen as seen them as in opposition. They're not in opposition. They play different roles. Okay, so one, the mathematical notion gives you um, the relationship between the inputs and the outputs. And the other notion, the kind of biological notion of function, uh, gives you a resource with which you can describe what the function of this system is. So in this case, the function of a computational system is to compute a mathematical function. Okay. Um, The teleological function, if you will. The teleological function of a computational system is to uh, perform a mathematical computation, which means is to compute a mathematical function. Okay. So the biological notion, as you just mentioned, is, is a tele- teleological one. Um, but at the same time, you, uh, you, you argue that the relevant sort of function, it, it, um, I, it wasn't, uh, it doesn't depend on its, 
uh, its history, its its ideology. It's rather a matter of what it can do, like now, or maybe now in a context or something like that. So more, its current causal powers rather than its its evolutionary history. Could could you explain that notion of function a bit more? Sure. Um, see, as soon as somebody says theological function, they open up a huge can of worms. That's right. Um, and I used <laughs> to try to stay neutral on that. You know, I used to say, oh, you know, there are these proper functions or these teleological functions. And I would get so many people say, well, you have to tell us what you think those are. You can't just say proper function without giving an account of proper function. Um, so eventually I did. <laughs> and uh, and so um, I, I was not entirely satisfied either by these evolutionary or selectionist accounts of function that are so popular in philosophy of biology or by the um, system-based accounts of function, you know, that go back to Robert Cummins um, that are also popular. And so eventually I settled on a, what I would call a more in, an, an intermediate um, position between the two extremes, um, and that's in the family of goal contribution accounts. Um, goal contribution account is a term that I, I get from Christopher Borse. So my account is not quite Borse's account, um, but it's in the same family, okay? So um, it's, it's an account of teleological functions, so there's a, there is a teleological aspect to these functions, meaning they are directed at something in a, in a sense okay they have they have a purpose or they and, and they have a normativity and even if it's a very minimal notion of normativity it's not ethical normativity mm-hmm. um, and that distinguishes them from Cummins's account but this normativity doesn't require you to look at the history it just requires you to look at what these functions contribute to the organisms that um, either possess the subsystem in the case of uh, biological traits or that build and use the artifacts in the case of artifacts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so let me just circle back to the, to the semantic question. Yes. Um, so uh, it sounds like, well, let me, let me just sort of rephrase it now. Um, one of the, you know, Mars top level, for example, the the computational level, and I don't want to you know, sort of pin anybody down. You know, that's that's his, just his label, right? We know uh-huh. that. Um, uh, the top level of, uh, you know, involves um, uh, knowing you know, sort of what the computation is for, and and that kind of. Uh, you know, all that as well as the algorithmic level of, you know, specifying the rules that compute whatever goal that is. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the physical mechanisms. Um, you know, I think, I think some people argue that that is, you know, the, the, the idea that you have, specifying the goals mm-hmm. are going to involve the sorts of relationships to the external world that, at least some of which will count as semantic relationships. Yes. Right. So that's that's basically what I was trying to get at before. So now that we have uh, the your notion of function sort of clearly on the table, um, can you say something about 
uh, you know, how you deal with those arguments that uh, whatever computability theory says about how symbols are defined, you know, Mm -hmm. without semantics and however much uh, it it might be easier to do so or, or you can give a complete account without mentioning the semantics, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pushback will obviously be, uh, you know, in order to define the goals of the system, uh, you're going to already be inv- invoking in some sense uh, the sorts of relationships that are going to be probably part of an account of the semantics of the symbols anyway. Yes. And, and when we do cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience, the goals or even or even the the functioning of the vehicles are going to be defined in terms of very very uh, distal uh, properties of the environment you know um, and so semantics is going to be part of the the way that we individuate the vehicles it's going to be part of the way that we individuate the goals mm-hmm. and, and so these two things are all mixed together um, and what I try to do in the book is just focus on what is the computational part of the story. Uh And and, and the claim is that when we just focus on computation per se, uh, semantics is an additional ingredient. It's not part of the computational story that it has to be semantic or it has to have meaning or semantic properties built in. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not that I reject um, semantics or... Um, semantic properties of the vehicles. It's just that they're not um, they're not part of the core computational explanation. Does that make sense? I, I uh, think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and and I have nothing against uh, individuating <laughs> things broadly, widely, right? Uh, Relation to the environment, even the computational uh, description itself. The you know kind of the pure computational description without semantics mm-hmm. um, might require you to look at the relationship between the system and its environment. Mm-hmm. You know, the way it's used, for example, by either by a larger system that contains it or by a user in the case of an artifact. So, um, so yeah, so it's wide, it's wide individuation. Uh, and, and actually I got this from Shagrir because Shagrir has a very interesting work arguing that at least in some special cases, you need to look at the um, relation to the environment. And he takes that relation to give you a semantics, and I say, well, it doesn't have to give you a semantics, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you might still need to look at, a, at the interaction with the environment. Okay, good. That was, that was helpful. Um, so there's a number of different issues here. You mentioned uh, uh, the medium independence of the vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that it's a it's a some sort of a micro physical microstate, but and more abstract. Um, uh, that sort of the the idea of medium independence, of course, is kind of baked into the whole idea of of functionalism, at least mm-hmm. as it's traditionally talked about, um, yes. where mm-hmm. you have a certain amount of autonomy. Right. I mean, that also comes in of the psychological level from the mere implementation level, as some people will say. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the idea that, you know, if you're 
uh, on the other hand, if you're if you're giving a mechanistic explanation of the mind, um, you know, a la John Bickle or something, you know, where it goes all the way down, um, mm-hmm. then it's necessarily reductive. And right. so you 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 provide a very interesting kind of in between an integrative view where mm. the idea where where the functionalism part of the story the the you know more specifically functional analysis um these are actually mechanism sketches so that kind of integrates them automatically into the the whole mechanistic explanatory picture yes. um but uh so there isn't uh, th- so you deny the sense of autonomy that many others have associated with with functionalism but at the same time uh you seem to embrace a lot of you know multiple realizability um and 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 a non-reductive you know ultimately non-reductive account so could you could you explain a bit about you know how you kind of steer between those two uh, with your with your functional analyses as mechanism sketches, how that manages to kind of steer between this, you know, it's autonomous, or and if it's not autonomous, therefore it's reductive. You kind of go in between those. Sure, thanks. Uh, here's a, maybe a simple way to put it. Uh, actually, before I say that. Um, let me just mention that medium independence, which I stress as part of this account, is an even stronger condition than multiple realizability. So it entails multiple realizability, uh-huh. but multiple realizability does not ne- uh, necessarily entail medium independence. So medium independence is stronger, meaning um, you know somebody might be me- multiple realized because, let's say, it's a functional kind. For example, classical example, a mousetrap, a mousetrap. You can you can build a mousetrap in lots of different ways, but all mousetraps have to manage the same kind of medium, namely mice. Uh, whereas if something's generally medium independent, uh, it's not defined in terms of a particular concrete kind like mice. It's just defined in terms of differences between for different portions of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if the vehicle were mice, it would be say the number of mice involved. Um, but you could do the same without using mice, but using little stones or using books, you know, as long as they are capable of coming in different numbers of items, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so medium independence is even stronger than multiple realizability. Hmm. Um, that being said, then the question is, um, how come then do I deny autonomy? Um, and I think that uh, maybe this can be put in this way. So people used to see the the relationship between uh, these different levels, you know, the computational level and what they call the implementation level or the mechanistic level. Of course, I don't I don't quite draw the distinction that way because to me they're all mechanistic. Right. Um, but they used to see the relation between the higher level and the lower level as uh, either they are the same, and then it, the the higher one reduces to the, to the lower one, or they have to be distinct. They're, they're, they're distinct levels, and then you know the, le- the science at the higher level becomes autonomous, or the, even the level itself can be said to be autonomous. And um, what they didn't typically consider, in this debate at least, is that there's a third option, which is that the higher level is sort of an aspect of the lower level. It's not identical to it, 
it doesn't it doesn't include everything that the lower level includes the lower level description includes if you will mm-hmm. but it is one aspect of it or one part of it or a subset of it and um there's a whole literature in the theory of properties you know the uh, uh, that that um, defends this view that higher level properties are a subset of the lower level properties. So, and it's related to this literature, but um, but it didn't quite make it into the debate on um, computation, at least physical computation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's why I say that the the, the, the computational levels, plural, because there's many of them. Um, are neither distinct from the lower levels nor um, identical to them. You know, they're, they're, they abstract away from some aspects of the lower levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to understand them, you still have to understand the relationships. You know, you have to understand what you are abstracting away from. So they're not autonomous. Okay. So let me, you know, just sort of channeling somebody who might not find that view of autonomy strong enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, and I recognizing that there may be different, different degrees of autonomy, but, so, but somebody who, uh, you know, classically like, like Fodor, I suppose, um, mm. who says, you know, you can, you know, our ex- explanation of the mind um, and, you know, modulo your, your comments early on that, you know, who knows if the brain is actually a physical computing system or not on your view. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's just for the sake of argument, you know, include the brain. Um, sure. uh, you know, he, well, and I defend that elsewhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. No so, problem. okay. Um, in any case, so the, somebody like Fodor or somebody who wants a stronger form of autonomy, if not, you know, actually a substance dualist view, would, you know, might find that thinking of the mind or the, the function, the processing that we call cognitive um, is just sort of an abstraction, uh, uh, puts constraints on it that they wouldn't want to that they don't think are needed or that that just aren't part of a proper explanation or a complete explanation of of the psychological level um uh and in other words you can do your complete psychological theorizing um you know, without referencing any of the physical stuff and and I take it that I mean that would be a very strong view um I, I take it that if on your view um the uh the idea that the you know functional analyses are mechanism sketches you know the the view that you articulate with with Carl Craver I think um uh, it, it seems to imply that no, there are going to be important constraints on psychological theorizing that come from the so-called, you know, mere implementation level, which would not be mere on your view. Mm-hmm. So could you could you, you know, address that sort of uh, you know pushback, if not sure. you know objection as such? It would just be no, we don't, we can. We should and could and can do psychological theorizing, and we really don't need to know, yeah. uh, you know, where in the brain things are happening. I mean, that's fine for clinical neuroscience, but it's you know, 
it's, it doesn't matter for psychology what sorts of the, the physical constraints, whatever they are, are, are so uh, broad that they're just not, uh, they're not necessary in terms of what we need to think about when we're thinking about psychology. Sure. Um, so there's at least two sides to this. One is just uh, computer science. If you look at computer science, there's, there are many uh, computational levels in a computer, and it's just simply false that they're autonomous from one another in any strong sense. If you want to design a computer, you have to understand the way each of the levels relates to the levels below and above, or it's not, it's not going to work. The system's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, even when you, and even when you reach the lowest computational level, you still have to understand um, how it's physically implemented in uh, the specific technology that you're using. Or again, you're not going to be able to build a functioning system. And when it comes to cognitive science, um, the kind of Fedorian picture might have been plausible 30 or 40 years ago. Um, before the rise of cognitive neuroscience. But now, the science itself um, doesn't work that way either. So if you look at serious people who try to understand or explain cognitive capacities, um, they don't do it in any kind of autonomous way from neuroscience. They use all the information they can from neuroscience. It might be just imaging studies, but the, the serious theorists look at much more than that. They look at what we know about, what we understand about neural signals, neural representations, and neural computations. So the, the, the field itself, the empirical field, has shifted from the kind of cognitive science that Fodor described to uh, cognitive neuroscience, uh, where the, the study is not autonomous. The study at one level is not autonomous from any other level. They're all um, interconnected, and they all put constraints on one another. Can Can you give maybe uh, give an example of a sort of constraint? Yes. So my favorite example is the vehicles themselves. Um, you know, Fodor talks about symbols, and his notion of symbol is inspired by uh, logic, uh, proof theory, and and maybe classical artificial intelligence. Uh, but it turns out that in the brain, there isn't anything quite like that. What you find is spike trains, uh, and the functional properties that seem most relevant are the firing rate and the timing of spikes. And you know, there's, more, there's a lot more uh, to say, but if you're not going to cons- uh, take into account um, these properties of the vehicles, uh, you're just not going to build plausible um explanations of how we actually uh, perform our cognitive capacities. And so if you look at a contemporary cognitive neuroscience, especially the modeling work, computational work, um, it's all couched in terms of things like firing rates and spike timing. Um, so they have to consider the specific type of vehicle um, that is involved in, this, in, in us, in, in our cognitive systems mm-hmm. okay um, so uh, well, well since we're since we're since you're just talking about about vehicles so the 
um, you know, you sort of you summarize your account at a, at a number of different places in which the computing uh, involves a, as you mentioned before, a goal-directed uh, goal goal-directed function. You know, where it's the function is in terms of a contribution towards a goal. Um, and this involves manipulating vehicles um, based, as you put it, based just on differences between different portions of vehicles um, according to rules uh, that are defined over the vehicles. Can you have vehicles that don't have parts? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Well, if okay, so if the, man, if the vehicles are manipulated uh, mm-hmm. based on differences between different portions of the vehicles... Mm-hmm. That seems to imply that any vehicle, that there could not be a vehicle that does not have portions. Right. Okay. I think I understand. Yes. So you cannot have, you cannot have a computation in which there's only one kind of symbol, for example. Uh-huh. So everything is just, um, is just, uh, you know, a Turing machine in which, all the squares on the tape have the same symbol on it. There have to be at least two. You know, at the very least, there have to be uh, blank squares and squares with a symbol on them. Uh-huh. Um, otherwise, there's no if there's no differentiation, there can't be any um, um, informative manipulation of the tape. Um, so, in that sense, yeah, there have to be parts, at least two different kinds of parts. Okay. Okay. That was that was just a question I sort of had as, as I mm-hmm. um, sort of thought about your uh, your sort of basic definition of of a computing system. Yeah. Um, then an, another issue that that also came up was in terms of the um, your the the scope. Uh, you argue uh, on the one hand that the physical computing systems. Uh, so you argue against this uh, kind of loose pan computationalism that some people have thrown around about that, you know, well, anything is a computing system. I mean, that's mm. that's something you, you're very clearly, you know, arguing against, right? That That's just... It's, it's un- surprising how many people yeah. uh, accept that everything is computational. Yes. Yeah. Um uh, and but on on the other hand, uh, and and you know, so part of the question is, you know, what what are they do? What are they doing? What are they not capturing that that you mm-hmm. are? Uh, but on the from the other side, um, your view is is not just restricted to uh, uh, biological systems, mm-hmm. um, but also to some you know to at least some at least potentially some artificial systems yeah. as well. Um, so could you say a bit about the the scope of your account from both those sides? Yes. Uh, and it has shifted over the years, but it's always been against pan computationalism, against the view that everything's computational. Um, so I started out, you know, more restrictive, um, just focusing on digital computational systems like Digital computers, calculators, Turing machines are, you know, maybe you want to say physically implemented Turing machines. Um, and then I realized that 
there were these other systems. I mean, I knew that about analog computers, and I thought, yeah, but analog computers are just so different than um, digital computers, and com- classical computability theory doesn't quite apply to them in any direct way. So maybe it's better to just say, well, those aren't really computers. They're just sort of called computers. But um, then later I realized that there's something important that they have in common. And, um, and so I tried to capture that with this notion of medium independence. And actually, I, I got this notion of medium independence from Justin Garson. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, that was a very um, insightful paper by him that I read that um, I borrowed this idea from. Um, so, so then I expanded the scope of the account from just digital computation to what I call computation in a generic sense, that's defined the way I defined it earlier in terms of medium independence. And that includes um, not only digital computers and digital computational systems, but also analog computational systems and also other so-called unconventional um, models of computation, like DNA computation, quantum computation. Um, There's a whole range of um, these unconventional types of computation that computer scientists uh, study these days and um, they should be captured by an adequate account of computation. But that doesn't mean that everything's computational. Mm -hmm. So again, um, yeah, you can build a computer out of anything, but this anything has to be regimented in very complicated, specific ways such that it manipulates its degrees of freedom um, in accordance with certain rules. Um, So, you know, the, the rules have to be um, followed, or at least the, the the system has to behave in accordance with certain rules, and in order to do that, it has to be organized a certain way. Um, so not everything is computational, but you can build a computer out of almost anything. Okay, even Swiss cheese. Uh, that's gonna be hard, but <laughs> yeah, Swiss cheese could be an ingredient. You know, not just cheese alone, because you know, cheese alone is probably not gonna do much. <laughs> but you can, but you could build a computer that uses cheese in some form. Uh huh. No. Okay. Um, but th- so then, on the other side, of course, you 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 know, it's not just. Um, so you mentioned before with the biological or the uh, the idea that the functions here are um, are goal. Um, it's part of it's it's a, a form of a goal contribution account of function mm-hmm. um, rather than a more, uh, I don't know, traditional teleological, ev- you know, evolutionary yes. account, or at least evolutionary history type account. Um, mm-hmm. And the goals here are that evolution sets, of course, are, are you know, survival, um, you know, fitness, things things of that nature. Um uh, so you also extend the view, as I mentioned before. To... Can I say something about that? Yeah, about please, goals? because I, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so in this account of functions that I defend in the book, which was um, articulated with um, Corey Maley. Mm-hmm. So this is a collaboration with Corey Maley. And I, other parts of the book, I collaborate with other people too. So you know, there's a part that I that I initially wrote with Carl Craver, and other part that I initially wrote with um, Andreas Garantino. So 
Um, I want to stress that this is also in part of the, uh, the, the result of a collaborative work. Mm. So, but with respect to functions, um, we distinguish between what we call objective functions. So these are fun, um, and objective goals, right? Sorry, goal. So functions are defined in terms of goals, and there's at least two different, importantly different kinds of goal. The objective goal that an organism has just in virtue of being an organism. So in virtue of being alive, um, you have to pursue, yeah, fitness, let's call it. Um, it boils down to survival and um, inclusive fitness, mm-hmm. uh, at least for some organisms. You know, there, there are sterile organisms that don't reproduce, but if not organisms reproduce, they would all go extinct eventually. So organisms, you know, by their nature, they have to pursue inclusive fitness. And, um, and so those are objective goals. And then, but then there are also subjective goals. So, um, some kinds of organisms like people, um, can also select their own personal goals, subjective goals, meaning, you know, we can decide that we want to build computers to help us perform certain kinds of calculations or other kinds of, uh, functions that require calculations. And that's how we build computers. And so because of that, because, because computers fulfill those goals, they have the function of computing. This is artifacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, that's where you bring in the idea of, of um, that they have a, a computer, a, a, you know, a, a non-human computer a, or a non-animal computer um, is still a, a perfectly legitimate you know, physical computing system in exactly the same sense in which uh, we are, or or maybe. Um, yeah. uh, but you also you also say that their their functions are derivative from ours. So do do they also have their are their go are do they have goals? I mean, in the same sense that we well, do. Well, they could if they you know if they. Um, uh, now now we can introduce even a third notion of goals. So there there are. Objective goals that organisms have, and so if we build artifacts that were organisms, you know, artificial organisms, those would have their own objective goals. Right. Um, then there are subjective goals which we choose, and so we need to have uh, sentience and sapience to select our own goals. And if you, if we build artifacts that have that those properties, then they could have their own subjective goals. But there's a third notion of goal, which is the cybernetic notion of a of a goal-directed system, which is a system that sort of aims for a certain state um, and is able to um, respond to external perturbations in a way that maintains this aim, um, then, you know, certainly artifacts um, have goals in that sense, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Some artifacts, not all artifacts, you know, like... Um, Guided missiles, you know, like self-guided missiles are, are you know, so-called intelligent bombs. They, um, they're goal-directed in that cybernetic sense. Yeah, that's okay. That that makes sense. Um, so let me just um, uh, let, let me, let's go to some some of the major themes towards towards the end of the book. Um, so I mentioned at the very beginning that uh, the you know in a, in a very very general sense. Uh, your your account falls into some sort of a version 
of the very generic, you might say, information processing view of the mind, um, you mm-hmm. know, looking at it from a very, very broad perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there are a number of different notions of information out there, as, as you as you make clear. Um, and you also, as we talked about before, make clear that, you know, on your view, you don't need to define what a what a physical computing system is uh, in terms of semantics or representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how this is, it's, it's a more complicated question than it sounds, but could, could you say a bit about how your, uh, your, your model uh, relates to some more general um, view of information processing. Sure. Um, and so uh, there's actually a chapter in the book on the relation between information processing and computation in which, um, and that that's a chapter that comes from a paper that I wrote with Andreas Garantino. Um, and the main point of that uh, chapter is that computation and information processing are distinct notions they're not the same, um, but they're related in important ways. So information processing, kind of in a strict sense, entails computation. So if you've got an information processor, you also have a computational system, but you can have a computational system that does not process any information. Um, but, you know, we human beings, um, as well as the typical computational artifacts that we build, we also do process information and so that's that's one reason it's easy to, conf- to conflate the two because the, the the almost all the artifacts that we build for computation they also process information as well as our own brains uh, certainly process information mm-hmm. so um so you know it's important to have a, a conceptual clarity but that being said um there are different notions of information that come into play there is the shannon notion um and that's certainly relevant so there are statistical dependencies between our uh, internal states and the environment. And so that is what characterizes the Shannon information system you know, or, or, or communication of Shannon information. Um, and then we can be more specific about the relation between these states and specific states of the environment. And when we do that, so when we identify what specific internal states uh, correlate with in the environment, um, we can uh, legitimately say that they carry semantic information. Now, I call it we call it natural semantic information because it's just based on reliable correlation with something in the environment. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know my um, perceptual state that correlates with the presence of pens in my visual environment. Um, carries natural semantic information that there are pens in um, in my visual environment, mm-hmm. um, and then there's another important notion of information, which is um, what I, we call Andrea and I call it non-natural semantic information, and the the term non-natural comes from Grice. You know, Grice distinguished between natural and unnatural meaning, and so we uh, distinguish between natural information, which is roughly Grice's natural meaning, mm-hmm. and non-natural information, which is roughly 
crisis, non-natural meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's a, still a unsolved problem how to give an account of non-natural meaning or non-natural information in naturalistic terms. There's a whole literature on that, and the book doesn't really get into it at all. But coincidentally, I'm, I'm right now working on that, and, I, and I'm writing uh, some papers on this topic. So, um, yeah, so stay tuned. Yeah. There's, there's new work coming up on right. precisely this. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it is. I mean, you, you do talk about a little bit about a miscomputation in the, in uh-huh. the book. Um, in fact, it's one of the desiderata you thought for a, for a adequate account of, of computing that you should be able to give an account of miscomputation, which, you know, which would not, of course, be misrepresentation of any sort on your view, right? Right. Um, well, let me just, uh, I, I want to, we haven't said anything. I haven't said anything about Turing or the, you know, the the church Turing thesis about, you know, which is one of the basic sort of uh, theses in computability theory. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you do go into some, uh, some computability theory to some extent um, in the, in, in sort of setting up the view and discussing it at certain points. Um, but at the at the very end you uh you defend what you call a a modest uh physical uh church theory church turing thesis um and uh this this modest uh church turing thesis or physical church turing thesis put certain limits on um what will count as a as a as computing in a physical system. Um, so could you say a bit about, you know, th- so there's the original ch- church Turing thesis. Um, then there's what you call the physical church Turing thesis. And then there's these different versions where you think that, you know, the, the most um, uh, defensible one is where computing is somewhere between uh, being an effective procedure, right, in the very strict sense, and uh-huh. yet is not as broad as just like any physical process. Right. Yes. So um, what I would say is the church during thesis uh, is a thesis about which functions are phys- are computable, mm-hmm. and, and then you can split that into which functions are computable by a mathematical algorithm. Um, that's the the kind of the mathematical church Turing thesis, and that's the one that Turing directly defended, and Church directly defended, and other people, and um, and it's it's pretty um, it's relatively uncontroversial. But then there is the question of which functions can be computed by physical systems, um, and that's where there's been a lot of debate, and in my opinion, some lack of clarity. And I think that once we uh, gain cl- enough clarity, uh, we can see that um, not any physical process should count as a computation. The physical processes that should count as computations are those that can be um, used um, by an observer to determine the values of a function that's specified in advance, if you will. 
Um, so the you know the observer has to be able to set up the physical system um, in response to specific input, and then wait some time and receive an output that stands in a certain functional relation, mathematical relation to the input, and that relation has to be known. It can't just be random. So um, so that when those constraints are in place, then um, it's it's very plausible, given the evidence that we have right now, that for all intents and purposes, the functions that can be physically computed are at most the ones that are computable by Turing machines. Mm-hmm. So that would be a modest physical version of the church Turing thesis. Okay. Um, so I think we're we're close to running out of time, and I do want to get to. Uh, the usual final question, which is, what's next for you? You mentioned uh, certain work in uh, information or, or representation or semantics. Um, could you say a bit about what uh, what's on your plate next? Uh, sure. There's way too much to um, give an exhaustive <laughs> list, but currently the main project would be to um, write this sort of the sequel of this book, which would be a book on explaining cognition mechanistically, um, which includes neural computations and neural representations and, you know, explaining um, information processing, right, including semantics, uh, naturalistically and scientifically. Um, and I've, you know, published a number of papers on this, but um, there's this is such a big... Uh, topic. Mm. So um, it would be good to um, have a um, updated account, you know, that that takes in that that includes you know mechanistic, multi-level mechanistic picture that that incorporates neural computation, neural representation that's consistent with contemporary cognitive neuroscience. So that's um, that's what I'd like to finish um, in the not too distant future. Um, you know, it, it, there's been work by other people in, in this um, area, but I think there is a lot more to say, some of which I've said, and so I'd like to publish a book about it. That's the main thing. Very good. Okay, so um, uh, thanks again for agreeing to uh, to talk about your book. Um, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, so uh, good luck with your the, the work you're um you're working on right now and uh i look forward to reading that thanks good luck to you carrie thank you bye-bye bye you've been listening to my interview with gualtiero piccinini who is professor of philosophy at university of missouri at st louis we've been talking about his new book physical computation a mechanistic account which is just out from oxford university press I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.